Hello and welcome to Music Rewind, a podcast where we look to tell the stories behind our favorite albums. I'm your host, Steve Epley, and in each episode, we invite a guest on to tell us about their favorite music album, how they discovered it, and what makes it special to them. Joining me today is author and historian Marty Weil. Marty is an award-winning writer, Chicago blues historian, and published author. You can find Marty at his fascinating Twitter page, at Chicago Blues History, at Shy Blues History, which is a treasure trove of history bits of all things Chicago blues. Welcome, Marty, and thank you for being on the show. Thanks, Steve. I'm happy to be here. Excited to talk about uh, the album today, and um, thanks for the warm welcome. Excellent. Yeah, I'm looking forward to diving into this one. All right, Marty, uh, this one may lean a- away from our usual concept of, of one album and delve more into a specific genre, but we'll jump right into it. What is your favorite album and how did you discover it? Sure. Um, the album is Chicago, the Blues Today. It's a three-disc set, and it's really a unique album in the sense that it's a sampler. And it was produced by a writer, a music historian, named Samuel Charters, and uh, he put this together for a couple thousand dollars after convincing Vanguard to go with an idea they, they knew probably wouldn't work. He was already fired from uh, prestige folklore for uh, trying to float the idea there. So he was unemployed. He was 65. He got two grand, and uh, he decides to put together this nine-artist sampler of what was going on in the small clubs around Chicago to sort of capture the best of that music scene in the mid sixties. And so this is, you know, not the typical, uh, album, uh, where an artist is established or, or a label is getting behind him. It's literally, literally a producer, uh, and a writer who goes out and then he handpicks these, these artists to come into the studios and they were working at a great studio, RCA studios in Chicago, which is very large and expansive, which gives this uh, album such a unique sound. So I fell in love with the album when I discovered it because it led me to discover a number of blues artists I didn't really know about or hadn't heard before. Yeah. I was pretty amazed at the, the lineup on here in that I had maybe heard of one or two in passing. I, I didn't really have a, a deep enough knowledge to all these, but I, but I, I had heard of a few, I'd heard of, you know, Otis Rush, I'd heard of Junior Wells, but the, you know, the lineup blew me away once you start listening to all of these and when it all comes together, it's pretty amazing. And not only that, but they have amazing contributors to this as well. The artists featured on it are, as you mentioned, Junior Wells, who I was fortunate to see live, uh, J.B. Hudo, Otis Spann, James Cotton, Otis Rush, Homesick James, Johnny Young, Johnny Shines, and Big Walter Horton. They're, they're the leaders. Those are the session leaders. And each of those guys had a one, one session in the studio for three hours. That was all they had. And then they had contributors, special guests, such as Buddy Guy, Willie Dixon, and Charlie Musselwhite, as well as Floyd Jones. So they had this, this enormous group of people basically shuffling in and out of studios uh, 57 years ago this November. So on a night like this, they probably were, were recording in Chicago this album 57 years ago. That's pretty amazing. So, so Samuel Charters, though, the guy that put all this together, why did he? Like, what was his well, like, intent? Sure, sure. Well, he, he was actually looking to capture what he, was, he had been hearing um, in the clubs in Chicago, all this amazing talent that existed. Uh, and he wanted, to get, he wanted to bring that sound to, to an album form, which it, basically this is a document 
uh, that he's created, a music document that he's created to capture this era that was quickly coming to a close. You have to remember, the British invasion was upon us, and uh, oh, the music true. scene had changed since the mid-50s considerably. Uh, blues, while still thriving in, on the South Side in these clubs, was withering, basically. And so this was a way, basically, to kick the uh, blues off for a new era. And it really existed from the end of the war to to point to the point where Charters made this album in 65. And then he was able to sort of kick this blues into high gear again. Because, you know, this was this album was discovered by people like, you know, Eric Clapton and Jimi Hendrix. In fact, Jimi Hendrix holds the album up in a very famous photo of him in his Paris apartment. And he's also holding an Elmore James album up. Uh, those two albums, in a way, are aligned because Elmore James sort of haunts this album. Elmore James certainly in 65 would have been included had he not died on Homesick James's couch, which I think is why Homesick James is included in this. He was not well known, but uh, he was a accolade of, of uh, Elmore James. Like I said, who died just years before he could have been on this album. He certainly would have, and it might have really kicked his career into high gear as well because it really set up the stage for people who very really weren't very well known. I mean, Otis Spann comes out from behind the piano, you know, from behind uh, the Muddy Waters band piano that he had been sitting at for years. And so a lot of these guys, as we'll discover as we go through this, weren't around to be heard. Um, so we'll talk, we'll talk about that more, but it's a fascinating document in that sense. Yeah. As I was going through the names, I noticed that these guys either died young for various reasons, or, or they literally played till they died late in life. Right. And they were able to, in large part, because they, some of these guys were already middle-aged, hadn't played in a while, uh, were out of the music business in some cases. And so then they got to resurrect their careers. Uh, we'll go, like I said, I have some notes on, on each individual as we get, as we get into each of their, right. uh, their sessions, but yeah, you'll see that it's an unusual situation in, in which most people who've listened to albums all their lives, you know, it's either some debut on a major label by a band that's got huge backing and a lot of money and, and, or it's a band that's well-established. It's put out dozens of albums and, you know, you don't really think about it. There's maybe a couple of hits on it and you want to hear the rest, but this wasn't, this wasn't designed that way at all. Real quick though, how how did you discover this album? Did someone turn you on to it, or did you just kind of come across it in your, uh, you know, through your life? I, you know, have actively been researching the blues, and of course, I was reading Samuel Charter's work, and then I sort of started thinking about him and what he did, and then immediately found this album. It's also mentioned in a couple of biographies where it really impacted people's okay. careers. Uh, I think Alligator, the guy who started Alligator. It was influenced by, you know, by it. But I could go down a lot of different roads. But, but the point is, this, this album then influenced like a whole generation of not only artists, but other writers and producers. And I mean, it just became sort of the, an essential album to have if you were in that blues world. That's cool. You know, one of the questions I was going to ask you was going to be if you, what, what do you recommend as far as a starting point for anyone to get into Chicago blues? And this album answers that question. Yeah, no, it, it it does miss Muddy Waters and Harlem Wolf, and that's because they were on the chess label and they couldn't get free to do this. This was a strictly like a union oh, they game. Oh, were, they were tied to the label. Tie it up, yeah. So, you know, other than, you know, other than them missing, um, but yeah, this, I would certainly direct people to this album if they just want to hear what it was like in the mid-60s with who was new and fresh on the scene and also people who had fallen out of the business, uh, but... We're bringing something to the scene in the clubs. 
and not on record. And now they're now they were again. All right. So how do you listen to the album? Do you do you shuffle around or do you go straight through when you put it on? Well, it's three discs and it's long, so I hardly ever go straight through. Uh, <laughs> I usually shuffle. I usually shuffle it. Um, I have certain pieces that I've pulled out of it and put on other playlists and stuff. Because, you know, it's, it's a commitment if you were going to listen to all three discs, you know, straight through. <laughs> Which I have lately. I, I've been uh, I've been a real deep dive into all three discs here, all 42 tracks. And uh, I, there are definitely ones that I have pulled out, as you said, put onto our own, my own separate playlist. The, uh, but this is also a great just shuffle. Just put this all 42 tracks on shuffle and you've got a, a, a long duration of just great blues playing in, in the background somewhere. Yeah, and there's really not a bad track. So if you did it That's that true. way, you know, and then the other, the other thing is these guys only had a chance to do four, four or five songs a piece. So it's hard to like get sick of them because it's, it's kind of an EP, a bunch of EPs tied, you know, they were tied together mm-hmm. almost if you wanted to think of that, think of it that way. But yeah. Let's I mean sell so, me through it as well. Yeah, walk walk like. me walk me through it from uh we can go we can go uh, front to back and talk about the the artists mainly and the, any standout tracks you want to mention. Yeah, I mean let's let's walk through you know disc one is called entitled Chicago. Basically, it's just volume one because the whole thing is sort of Chicago, the blues today. Of course, it kicks off with with Junior Wells. Lord, I can't stand to see my baby go. When things go wrong, wrong with you. It hurt me too. And Wells was probably the hottest act at that time in Chicago. He had just come out the, the year before with Hoodoo Man Blues, which is considered a masterpiece that he and he and Buddy Guy put together. And so he was really, really hot. And uh, so, so he's, he leads off the record cause he really was Chicago at that moment. You know, I think he was, he, he really was coming on and strong and he had, uh, so much talent. And I, I he also thought, uh, and, and had some credibility in thinking that perhaps, uh, uh, James Brown had studied him and copied him and was really? doing basically his act. Yeah. And they're on Hoodoo Man. I think he actually does like a little, <laughs> he, he takes a little shot at, uh, James Brown. I don't know that Brown ever shot back, but Junior Wells certainly, certainly uh, is amazing on this. And he sounds so good again, because it's in the RCA studios. Not often was he, not, I shouldn't say not often. In some cases, he, the recordings were hit or miss in terms of quality. Now, of course, Hootie Man Blues was, was fantastically recorded. It was a beautiful album. Good. I would also point somebody to that album if they uh, were looking for something just to get started with. And I dove into these bands as well. And, and as I mentioned before we start recording, that there's definitely a gigantic interweb of connections between all of these guys. And uh, the name Sonny Boy Williams comes up a lot throughout all of the histories. And he actually right. starts out talking about Sonny Boy Williams on, on the very first track. That's right, because Sonny Boy also had re- had recently died. Died around the same time as uh, Elmore James. So... And he, they, these guys were seriously on their mind when they, when they went into the studio to record this. Now with Junior Wells, like I said, I was fortunate enough to get to see him play with Buddy Guy while they were still relatively young in 85. And I had to say that, uh, th- that was sort of the spark that lit the fire under me to get into, uh, re- uh, doing blues history because at that, that night it was at a college in a small room and there was very, not many people there and they had nowhere to go after the show and Buddy because they were stuck in the middle of central Illinois and they lived on the South side. They, they were, it was 
sort of 10 and they had played a couple hours and they said, you know, you guys really don't really know what the blues is. We're going to teach you. And they did like a whole other set where Buddy Guy did, uh, he did interpretations of other great bluesmen's uh, guitar work and they told stories and they just hung out. And I was like so overwhelmed and impressed. I was like, I want to, I want to study the blues. I want to, I want to learn about, because when I went to that show, I was a blues fan when I left, you know, I, I kind of had this aspiration to become a, a blues historian. Oh, that's fantastic. So yeah, Wells touched me quite deeply. And then you have J.B. Hudo, that's an artist who I had not heard of uh, going into listening to this album. He had been working as a janitor for 11 years leading up to the recording session. So there's no wonder I hadn't heard of them. He's heavily influenced by Elmore James. He sounds a lot like Elmore James. And in some instances, he comes close to matching Elmore on this album, I think. He's also the uncle of a blues man in Chicago named Little Ed, who uh, with his, uh, his band is called Little Ed and the Blues Imperials. And uh, speaking of rabbit holes, I, I'm a, a Little Ed fan and I own a Little Ed Fez, which is a hat, like a Fez hat that he designed. <laughs> so anyway, J.B. Hudo, his session, you know, launches the rest of his, you know, he, he be gets back in the music business in a big way and is in high demand after this. And, and Otis Spann was in Muddy Waters' band and was considered like Muddy's closest man. I mean, his main, his, Muddy called him his mainline man. And he lived in Muddy's basement for many, many years, Spann did. And this was three years, This when this was made, it, he was still three years away from breaking off on his own and going solo. He stayed with Muddy till 69. But I think Span is most famous, in my mind, for the music he did at, at Newport with, Buddy, with um, Muddy Waters. And he actually made up music on the spot to go with poet uh, Langston Hughes' lyrics at Newport in 1960. Langston Hughes had feared that Newport would, that would be the last show at Newport, Muddy Waters' show. It's a long story, but there was a riot there the previous day. In any event, Langston Hughes hands Span lyrics that he had written on these IBM punch cards. And Span makes up music on the spot. It's on the album, uh, The Muddy Waters, Newport, 1960, Goodbye Newport. So here again, Span uh, is brought to the fore as a leader uh, and uh, foreshadows what will be great albums from him, you know, in years in the 70s. Span's set was one of the standouts for me of all three volumes. It kind of, kind of caught me off guard because the first two were, were, were very much what I was expecting as far as you know Chicago or Delta Blues versions, uh, amazing all amazing tracks. And then Otis Span comes in with this uh, Southside piano, and it was it was amazing. I loved it. I, I could listen to that piano all day. Yeah, Otis Span has got to be one of my favorites, along with like Memphis Slim. But, uh, but Otis Spann, yeah, I mean, he's, 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 he's absolutely fantastic. He was irreplaceable really, uh, in that band. And, he, and so you want me to talk about like maybe standout tracks on this, uh, on this, uh, on this particular side? Uh, sure. Yeah. Well, for, for okay. volume one, what are your standout tracks? The, well, on Chicago, uh, Junior Wells doing Help Me, uh, J.B. Hudo's, uh, Please Help, and then Otis Spann's Span Stomp. So those are the three I picked out. What about you? Uh, what were your standouts? Well, if I had to pick three just uh, to go on that trend, it would have to be uh, It Hurts Me Too um, from Junior Wells. That that one I liked a lot, mainly because I, I also like the Government Mule version. And uh, it, it hit me right away. That's 
that's where I know that track. And I, well, and I love this. Elmore, as well. I, I'm that's Elmore James. I'm, that's Elmore. I believe that's an Elmore James Penn tune. Um, I, oh. I, I, I double check that because we may need to edit it out if I'm wrong, but I believe I'm right. But that was <laughs> part of the whole Elmore James, you know, his ghost hanging over that. But yeah, if my memory serves, he, that's an Elmore James track. For uh, Jimmy Hutto, uh, please help. And then uh, also that uh, Span Stump. Great track. Okay, so yeah, we were, we our, our ears were tuned pretty, pretty much alike there. Now, on disc two, the blues, you, you of course have James Cotton. And I also was fortunate to see James Cotton uh play uh, live and i saw him at opening night of cotton chicago which he did not own but it, he did open the club uh for whoever owned it and you know of course cotton's nickname was mr Superharp. he also played in muddy waters band and he was a disciple of the harp player uh sonny boyle williamson too and Cotton, of course, well, I mean, Cotton played, Cotton is one of those legendary figures that he played in so, on so many albums and influenced so many people. Yeah, he I've actually got everywhere. a short list here because uh, of, of, classic rock is kind of a sweet spot for the show. Uh, sure, and, and sure. So well, this all I mean, fed yeah, into that. And... He toured with Janis Joplin. He played with Greg Allman, Elvin Bishop, Joe Bonamassa, Paul Butterfield, Grateful Dead, B.B. King, Freddie King, Keith Richards, Santana. Taj Mahal, Johnny Winters, and others. I mean, that's all over the place. Yeah, well, it's any place pretty much everybody. You covered the waterfront there. Yeah, no, he and he was so he he had a brilliant career, and of course, he does a brilliant set on this. I particularly like his song on this uh, "West Hell in a Blues." I think is a beautiful song that he does on the uh, on the album here. Um, and then Otis Rush is the is the next uh, is the next leader to go up, and his showcase. His showcases the emergence of the West Side sound. I like to call it West Side Soul. Uh, okay. But he was a major influence on a number of, of rock and blues stars like Michael Bloomfield, Peter Green, Eric Clapton. Well, I can't quit you, baby. But I gotta put you down for a while. I mean, this LP launched a whole European tour for Rush, but it also, like I said, established, solidified that West Side sound. So it's differentiating itself somewhat from the South Side. But we're talking about differentiations of blocks or miles and distance, but mm -hmm. in terms of music, maybe somewhat of a much larger gulf, because I think really blues rock emerges from West Side Soul, because it's okay. sort of this blending you know, well, I mean, I think Otis Rush, if you were going to point somebody to who was came from that classic rock genre, I think they would mostly focus on Otis Rush and his sound because I think they would it resonated in the sounds of Clapton, like I said, and, and Peter Green of the original Fleetwood Mac and so forth. Well, so, and, and you can't get away from Led Zeppelin on this one. Exactly. No, you, exactly I mean, I, I, I can't quit you, baby. I mean, as soon as that started, it knew right where it was going. Yeah, he cut through the heart, you know, of, of Europe when he right after this album came out and that's why you know you see hendrix holding it in paris you know it was it was mm -hmm. known especially amongst the musicians of that time frame uh and certainly the psychedelic rock musicians you know were flocking to this album um you know it was not a it was not a hidden gem in that sense i mean people who were in the know and and were seeking this sort of music out found it so then it wraps up, uh, the, the blue side, disc two wraps up with Homesick James. As I mentioned, 
um, where James had died on homesick James's couch and of a heart attack at age 45. And homesick James, slide guitar, he takes us all the way back to Robert Johnson. I mean, if you, if you really love the slide guitar, homesick James, I recommend his album, Blues on the South Side. Now, again, you know, what, what Charters was trying to do is not only show you different groups, but different even neighborhoods within Chicago and their, how their sounds were slightly different. Homesick is certainly different than Otis Rock. But um, I, I, I also chose I Can't Quit You Baby as my standout track from this disc, as well as uh, Homesick Shames, Somebody's Been Talking. Somebody's Been Talking is great. I, I do like Dust My Broom a lot. I thought that was sure, a, a great track. Uh, but also from uh, Modus Rush, I liked uh, Rock, that instrumental track. Oh, yeah, no, that's a great track and often overlooked. Wait, you, you've got a good ear for this sort of thing. That's a really excellent pick. Um, kind of a sleeper pick, but a, gr a great instrumental. Uh, I did want to mention that. So Rocket 88 from Johnny Cotton, not a fan. Right. I, I right. didn't, well, I didn't like that one. That's a remake of the fifties, you know, Ike Turner, Rocket 88, which was considered the first, like one, it's in the running, running for the first rock song. I don't, I, I don't know which one is really the really? first one. Okay. But that's, that's why that's, that's, that's what that's all well, about. Like sandwiched in between <laughs> love me or leave. And West Helena Blues, it just, it didn't fit to me. It was, it just seemed really off because I loved all the other tracks, but that one just seemed like it belonged on another album. So yeah, well, a rock and roll album. That's yeah. you're right. I mean, that's, and it's, it came like it, almost rock and roll. It, yeah. it is a rock and roll song. So whether it was the first or not could be argued and is argued all the time. <laughs> I don't want to argue, <laughs> but yeah, but yeah, that's, that's where that, I think that's where that, that came, that idea came. Okay. So then, and then on disc three, of course, was t today. And so you've got, um, it's called today. And so you've got, uh, you've got, you know, Johnny Young. And so the really interesting thing about him is he had retired from the music business in the 1950s. And this album gave him a whole second act, which lasted until his death in 73. So he is one of the few mandolin players that was active in blues music after World War II. There was a lot of, there was some mandolin on, on albums on 78's pre-war. But after the war, he was one of the few. And to hear him recorded in the RC studios, again, I got to go back to that because the sound is just rich. And to hear that uh, blues mandolin is so rare. I don't know anybody who could play today. I'm sure somebody will come up with players, but he he was he was really the best and the only. <laughs> so he had, you know, but I I just when I heard that, when I got to this three the first time listening to this and hearing that, I was like, wow, you know, this took it to a whole new like stratosphere. I'm like, this album, he just never stops delivering the goods. And so then and then you get kind of then you then here comes Johnny Shines and Johnny Shines goes all the way back to you know. Robert Johnson era. He was a running buddy of his. He yeah, was he Johnny Shines. 
Sure. Yeah, they were all well, the tour together. Tour being tour a loosely. relative word, yeah. <laughs> you know, but they, 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 they ran together, basically, and they played together. And to what extent, that, that's debatable, because we only have Shine side of it. If you like Shines, um, his album Too Wet to Plow gives you gives you a lot more of what this is, and it's much more of a traditional sound. I don't, I, it's a, it's a pre-war sound, and he he sings in a high register. I don't think it's ever, it's everybody's cup of tea, but I, it's interesting. Okay, what was your thought? Uh, well, I I thought it was kind of neat that this this is another one that was he was working in construction. Like the other guy was yeah, a janitor. Yeah. Well, this guy was doing construction work until this album was finally hit, and then that brought him into the limelight. Yeah, well, he had he, he Johnny Shines was on a lot of albums. If you if you look, they just didn't make any money. <laughs> yeah, and he was you know and he and he was also, uh, yeah. I mean, he held a lot of jobs, but yeah, this finally get got him sort of on the college and, and on the international tours, and, and you know, he was able to then get back to music. And then of course you know it, it wraps up with Big Walter, who was a was a guest on other other uh, groups tracks, uh, and Big Walter is somebody Willie Dixon who I admire a lot. Uh, said was the best harp player you'd ever heard. Big Walter had to change his nickname to accommodate Little Walter because Big Walter said they can't be too <laughs> can't be two Walters. So, and you know, he also was known by the name Shaky Horton, which I don't think he particularly cared for because he he liked Big Walter. But he could often be found found still busking on Maxwell Street while they were making this album, on, and down the road from there as well. He just played with everybody. I I love Big Walter. He's my favorite harp player of all time as well. Okay, the little bit of trivia I saw that he was actually uh, on screen on the Blues Brothers, the movie. That's right. Backing John Lee Hooker, Hooker that, sorry, that. dubbed in the final version because he got tired of the multiple takes and he and he left. That's the kind of guy Bill Wal Big Walter was, and that's why he wasn't a, a commercial success to the extent Little Walter was, because Little Walter was pr promoted himself heavily, and Little Walter could sing, and Big Walter couldn't. And there were a number of other reasons that Big Walter didn't become as successful, but he was an amazing harp player, and his music, his harp is on so many tracks, and they make so many, they make or break so many tracks his harp so he in a way is like willie dixon in that you don't really realize the impact he had on so much music but he he did um and he's just i love his work on this album he actually didn't pick any of his songs and standouts i don't think this is his, his best stuff is on this album but he can be, we can be found elsewhere but on this album, i picked out you know i got mine by johnny shines i mean by johnny young and then uh dino flow blues by johnny shines is the two things i really liked on this on this side I did have, uh, uh, I, I got mine in time and Dino Flow Blues uh, highlighted as, as well as uh, My Black Mare. And, oh, uh, yes. I meant to mention, yeah, yeah, Big Big Walter's My Black That's a, that's actually one of his best tracks. I should, I should if, if you don't mind editing out the early part, I, I should rescind that. That's really one of his best tracks. So, you know, I, I don't mean to diminish, because he shines on the album. It just, he has just the three little tracks and I, I think it's almost, feels like it was bolted on at the end of me a little bit. But I also like the um, uh, laying down my shoes and clothes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I that was a good track too. Yeah. 
so much, so much good stuff. And like I said, when you tie it all back to the beginning, you can really just put this on shuffle, sit down for the evening, and you've got yourself a a whole uh, blues, you know, playlist. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> at the ready. Yeah, at the ready. So it's a special, special album, and a lot of great stuff on it. Are, are there any lyrics that that stand out to you as special, or things that you know worth remembering of that nature? Yeah, two things I think. Well, you mentioned one was uh, the, the the spoken tribute to Sonny Boy Williamson too at the, at the very beginning of the uh, of the album, and then I think it's important to point out Junior Wells' Vietnam protest song. Uh, that's a very early protest song. You know, the war had really not gotten gotten going, and there wasn't many people out against it in '65, November of '65. So that was a very early you know, protest. And you're, and you're talking about track four of the Viet Cong Blues. You don't have no reason to fight, baby, but yeah, Viet Cong blues. So that, that yeah, that song I think um, broke some ground, definitely. But yeah, that those are those are the only points I had on that on that. Well, and are there any tracks that you skip that you're not a fan of? I mean, it's okay to say no um, on that one. Yeah, no. I, if I if I put this on, I mean, I'm pretty much going to listen to you know, like you said, either on shuffle or all the way through. Sometimes I'll skip a Johnny Shines track if I don't, if I just not mood for that, that his sort of that high high register singing. But otherwise, no, I, I like pretty much everything that's on here a lot. Last question before we move on to a short list. But has your love of this album changed over time at all, like compared to when you first discovered it to now? Yeah, when I first discovered, it, I was just like blown away, and how is it that I never heard of this? That was my reaction, and I got to tell everybody about it. So now it's more of like, wow, what a historical document this thing is and how important it is as a, as a document in, in every sense of the word. So that I sort of have a deeper respect for what the Charters was able to accomplish with a couple thousand dollars. And it's a real, it's, it's, it's certainly, I think, one of the best albums of the second half of the you know, 20th century. Uh, that's a great way to look at it. It's, it's definitely almost a time capsule mm-hmm. and a high quality one at that. It's not something that's, scratchy or half the tracks may you know cut off or anything it's it is a high quality historical document based on what was there at the time it's beautiful yeah i agree it's it's really cool and it captures the city of chicago as in a time capsule sense as well especially the south side and that's the year i was born that's the year i lived on the south i was born on the south side lived there for the first six years of my life i was i was (laughs) i was alive and kicking when they were doing this (laughs) My uh, my National Guard armory was in Crestwood, Illinois. So I was I was over in that area once a month for quite a few years. That's very far south side, the suburb, right? Way down south. Yeah, I was in the yeah, city. it's yeah, it's, yeah. Da- it's down Cicero. I mean, maybe fifteen minutes up Cicero, and you're closer to the city. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that area. It's a. It's quite. It's you know. It's a. Uh, it's so steeped in history. It's 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 amazing, really. There's history around every corner. And I, I take pride in coming, you know, my, my family came out of the South Side and uh, I, you know, I have my roots go back there many generations. I have, still have family that live there. Um, so, you know, it's an important place in my heart. Outstanding. So shortlist, what albums made your shortlist, but not the top spot? Yeah, I picked, I picked, a, I picked a couple of albums that, you know, I've talked about actually this album on another podcast, but the uh, Holland Wolf's Rock and Chair album. It's certainly one 
that, you know, from chess that, that I think uh, it should be in everybody's collection. And then Big Mama Thornton with the Muddy Waters band, including Muddy Waters. Uh, that's an album that everybody should hear. It's what Big Mama Thornton would sound like if she had Muddy, Waddy, Muddy, <laughs> Muddy Waters Army behind her. And it's fantastic. And then uh, T-Bone Walker's Blues, T-Bone Blues, I would recommend. Uh, we talked about Hoodoo Man Blues from Junior Wells. Uh, I would also recommend uh, Blues Guitar Boss by Hubert Sumlin. And then the last one, an Otis Band record, uh, The Blues Never Die. So those would be the ones I would I would pick. If I had other choices and I had more time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's outstanding. I, I will definitely be diving into some of those. Cool. I hope you enjoy them. hope you enjoy them, and I'm glad you enjoyed this album. Before we wrap this up, please tell our listeners what you're working on, if they can find you anywhere or anything you would like to pitch. Sure. Well, I mean, I just do the blues research uh, as a hobby and, you know, as, as an interest. So I'm not really pitching anything other than you can join the ride at on Twitter uh, by following me at Chai Blues History, C-H-I Blues History. And uh, I'd be happy to have you along. I've got 10,000 followers and um, it's been, you know, a really amazing way to interact and talk with people who are into the blues and talk about albums like this. So it's, and thank you so much for the opportunity to do it on your show. Really appreciate it, Steve. Well, th- thank you for joining. I, I really do appreciate it. I, I expect every one of your 10,000 followers to listen to this episode. So, so do I. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. I hope they do. hope they enjoy it too. As much as I am doing it with you. Thanks a lot. Well, yeah, Marty, I'd say thank you for your time today. And it was a pleasure to sit and talk to you about Chicago, the blues today. Take care, Steve. Thanks. Bye. I'd like to thank you for listening to Music Rewind, a podcast from the Sidereal Media Group. If you enjoyed today's episode, there are many ways to help the show, such as our Patreon or affiliate links in the show notes. The easiest way, though, is to give the show a rating or comment wherever you listen. We really do appreciate it. Thank you again, and as I always say, listen to the full album. Until next time. A podcast from the Sidereal Media Group. Back to you, anchors.